How? Why? Like, how was I born? How was I know? How, how did I know the first time that I was ever called nigger? Why they were calling me that? Why it hurt? I was seven. I just moved to New York. I was seven. Right? That is so. I'm seven. I'm a little ass kid, and yet I know all the racial implications. You don't gotta tell me how much it hurt. You know, I cried. You know what I'm saying? So what happened way, what happened to my mom and daddy? What happened to my grandparents? What happened way before that? That a seven-year-old already knows what it is. So that's basically the thing was peeling back the layers and letting and letting black people know our narrative. And then white people know it too, because so many people get this pop jigaboo narrative and they think that black is synonymous with predator. Black is synonymous with violent. Black is black is nothing but resilient. Welcome to season two, episode four of Protest and Survive. I'm your host, Reed Dunley. I met our guest the 83rd at Occupy City Hall in New York City. It was a 24-hour encampment protest calling for defunding the NYPD in the city's annual budget negotiations between the mayor and the city council. This was back right after the police killing of George Floyd, when everyone on the left still agreed that defunding the police was actually a good idea and just the first step. I was covering the protest for Rolling Stone and interviewed the 83rd because he was projecting a message on the David N. Dinkins Manhattan Municipal Building across the street from City Hall, RIP Mayor Dinkins. The message was a five-point plan he developed about how to address police violence, end qualified immunity, pass a Civilian Defense Act, divest the police, invest in black communities, and end petty crime arrests. I could tell right away that he had big ideas, and much more importantly, he was in the streets working on them. The 83rd makes really weird, tripped-out electronic music. It's awesome. He also runs a record label, website, and Instagram called Sermon 3. It's a platform for art, music, culture, protest, and news, all of which he describes as a national emergency. He's got a lot more followers than Protest and Survive, but in a lot of ways, it's a similar concept, just in different mediums. He's connecting people to organize and participate in direct action and to treat cultural expression as a shared language of resistance. So without further ado, here's the 83rd of Sermon 3 on Protest and Survive. So the 83rd, you want to tell me about yourself? Yeah, what do you want to know? There's so much to tell. <laughs> I don't, yeah, that's, I like to leave that question open-ended. You know? uh, yeah, I mean, well, um, I'm a record producer, um, occupation-wise. And I run a, a media company label called Sermon 3 Recordings um, in Brooklyn. Um, my biggest, I think, driving factor um, is pushing boundaries in art and music and possibilities and also giving um, priority to people who deserve it, who a lot of times are are the foundations of um, art, music, culture that don't get the proper privy. You know, uh, when I look at uh, my family, Black community and all the things that we've done, you know, and all the things that go unwritten or uncovered, uh, with Sermon 3, I wanted to cover uh, deep roots in Mississippi and uh, ghetto house and things that were happening in hoods and in rural areas that that impacted the rest of the world, but they never, you know, they got, never got an interview. So, you know, I was I'm always surrounded by a bunch of limitless, hyper creative, 
beautiful um, people, specifically with my community, a lot of black people who are just dope and have done so much. So that was the heart with Sermon 3. That's hard with myself. I've been in the business so long and I've jumped so much shit off and nobody really knows who I am still, you know? So I definitely see myself in other people. You know, I see myself in the queer community and punks and other people that that might be, you know, living at the poverty line and figuring it out, but have done so much historically. So that's that's really what I do in, in the music is uh, push boundaries with it and then also just highlight the homies that need it, you know? And what you're talking about right there, it sounds like there's kind of like a lot of, you know, overlapping, but also like different communities that you're you're working with, you know, in terms of like where people live in the city or what kind of music or art people are actually into. How do you kind of like find and connect with all these these different communities? And do you see it kind of like building into one thing? It's just really just was is a natural thing of necessity. I created I mean, Sermon 3 started because. I don't know how many deals I was supposed to do. I was supposed to, you know, sign with Rock Nation and then sign with Post Recording and then sign with Warner Brothers. And I was supposed to, then I was in house with Dame Dash. I just had been through the, the mill. And then I had a deal with this shady ass exec <laughs> who, who basically, uh, uh, at the end of the day owed me like $12,000. And I was just like, it fell off, you know? Um, and I was trying to figure out what I'm going to do, you know, what I'm going to do for money. And, um, at the same time, uh, my, my mental state wasn't in the healthiest in 2016. You know, I was at a place where, you know, I very well could not have been here. Um, I was battling with suicidal thoughts, a bunch of things. It was a dark space. And those two things converged. It was a thing where I was trying to figure out bread, my money situation, and I was trying to just stay alive in a lot of ways. Um, and so I created music for me is the only place that's limitless. It's tax free. I don't got to worry about people talking me, but I'm talking about my back, behind my back. Any of that is free of ego. And so I created the Genai album, which became the first release on Sermon 3. Um, I wasn't thinking about creating an album. I never really, that's not really the goal. It was, it was, I'd rather punch these keyboards than punch myself, cut myself. Or th- so it was just that that body of work. So I put that out and I was looking for other people who were just raw and honest with their emotions and where they're at. And um, I found out about this experimental uh, festival that Bob Bellaru was throwing and uh, Silent Barn. So I, I, I pulled up over there, you know. And what was that, End Times? That was End Times, yeah. It was like my first End Times. And Bob was hella dope, hella nice. Didn't know me from shit and just was like, you know, got me involved. And I met Adam Morawski, who uh, was Time Ghost. Blew my mind. Susie, um, Pablas, um, and just like, a bunch of really, really nice and incredibly talented people um, who were also creating guttural music, you know? I was just inspired by them. So me and Adam linked specifically, and, you know, now fast forward back to the label and the money, right? So um, Sermon 3 is getting his baby roots right there. But at the same time, you know, I'm an engineer and working with these labels, and, you know, they held me bread. And Adam was like, yo, you should come to Output, because he worked at Output as a sound engineer. Sometimes just come visit me. I was like, okay, lit. Um, I pulled up the output and I was talking to Adam. I was telling him about how 
raps, how much music business sucks. And he was like, you should get a job at the club. Come work with us. And I was like, what? Because I had never bounced. I had never done none of that. I wasn't really a club kid, none of that stuff. You know, I just was studio rap. But I needed extra bread, and they showed me love, so I started working in clubs. And I found out a lot of the people in the clubs were the same people um, that were, like, in a lot of ways, my kin, my family, making crazy, hyper-creative shit, fashion, music, everything that, like, we could finish each other's sentence art-wise. And, like, New York City clubs really kept us alive, you know? And so you had a, a big diaspora of you know, different races and gender identities and sexual orientations. And um, that's that's really too just, so it was like a thing of necessity. I needed bread. And then I met some more homies, you know what I mean? And then the first album that was on the label side was me putting some shit out because I was trying to survive mentally. So it's always just been never like a contrived thing of me trying to like find a hit or work with a certain artist. It's just me really trying to get, you know, better each day wake up and see what's next, you know? Like, matter of fact shit, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you remember when you kind of, like, first got into producing and making music and, like, <laughs> yeah. when you kind of, like, you know, realized that music was something that, like, you actually wanted to to pursue, like, yeah, you know, in your life? Yeah, it was, man, it was two, it was two, one thing, the first time I really, there was, like, I want to think of, I think like three pivotal moments. First one was I got a drum set when I was 13, right? My mom hooked me up with a drum set. My mom and my dad, shout out to both of them. So, you know, I'm playing, I'm playing the drums with my brother and my brother's a year and a half older than me. And when I'm playing the drums, I can see everything in my head. Like it was all linear and I could turn the beats around. I could like be like, I could see all these things and so my head was flashing and I was just in and out of the beat. And I remember at one point he looked at me and he was like, are we playing the same song? <laughs> and I knew very well that I was and I knew very well, like in that moment I had something special. I was I was in control. I knew where I was at and I, and I saw all these possibilities. So that was one thing where I was like, I got something. So I started my career on Maurice Joshua's uh, Grammy winning remix team. Um, he got a Grammy for Crazy in Love. Uh, best remix for it. And then, like, the next month, I joined the team. I became the youngest member at, like, 20 years old, you know? So I went from, you know, playing in church and making beats with Brad in my basement to me and Brad joined his team. I'm doing remixes from Ryan Carey, you know what I'm saying? And it was lit. It was a really, really dope experience because Gantman, who's like uh, like a juke legend now, I used to watch young Gantman in there, you know, smoking a split on an NPC, you know, watching Mo make uh, and Rob Diggy and uh, Matt and all the homies making like some really iconic mixes. I was in the room, in the back of the room, just watching, you know. And then me and Brad had something special because I didn't go to production school because I had been around just doing my thing and I was just, you know, Town and brother on the drums, kicking it. So the way I seen beats and the way I seen um, piano, all that was different. And it definitely had the black experience all in it because that's who I am. And then Brad had more of a rock background. So together we had this this sound, you know. And I did that for a while. I did that for like a few years. Did a bunch of remixes for like Genuine, a bunch of people. But the labels would never pay for it. They would, they would, they would, we would return it. They were all commissioned, but they would keep turning down our mixes and they would take Mo's or people who are a little more known 
And then finally, Atlantic Records asked us to do a Trey Songz remix. I fly out to LA and then they stole our remix, put it on the, put it on the radio under another producer's name. So once, you know, first major label stole my music, I was like, yo, what the hell? So I went up to WGCI and I was like, yo, we the Quest. And they had known about us because, you know, Mo's the only one in the city with a Grammy. So they knew who we were. And uh, I was like, yo, I just did a Trey Song remix with my boy Brad. I don't care what you hear on the radio. This came from us. You dig? We just got back from L.A. And they were like, okay, say less. And then they were in a the room. They played that joint. Everybody was like, hey, next thing you know, we're on the radio. And we start working. And we worked with more radio stations. So we were busting out GCI, uh, B96. You know, I'm 20, 21 years old. Hearing myself pretty much daily or weekly on the radio. But I still wasn't getting bread for it. I still work part-time in the gym type shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, So it was just like, I just kept, and I kept dealing with shady execs, like trying to, get the music and not come off. That's why me as an exec now running my 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 company, I'm like, bet everything that I wanted that person to be, I'm going to be. How about that? You know what I mean? Um, and so I came back to New York, but I came into the city and I came back and just started all over, you know? And I worked at a bunch of different studios. I lived in Harlem. I worked at a bunch of different studios all over, you know? And then I ended up getting an um, opportunity with Brad to be in-house producers for this R&B group called Jagged Edge. And they did like, uh, where the party at? And let's get married, all that. Belvedere in the rear of the club, pulled up on dubs, and we about to go and buy the bar up. So, so, for sure, we ain't playing. Hang with no lanes, walk insane. So I was hyped. I was like, let's get it. You know, we were going to develop all that shit. I get to Atlanta, and our A&R got fired. Now, I moved from Harlem all the way to Atlanta after having leaving the shot. And now I got no work. I don't know nothing about Atlanta. You know what I'm saying? I'm out of work trying to figure out my life. So my life's been, uh, it's been a tale of not knowing what's around the next corner, good or bad. It's been, I can never rest on nothing. No credits, no money, no people, because it would would come in and out. And it kept teaching me, depend on yourself, yo. At the end of the day, all you got is your word. So that's really, and I could tell you the music business story, like that would take a full hour, but you know, I got myself going in Atlanta, found myself working with Matt Malpass, Matt Goldman. Matt, Matt Goldman had a crazy studio, sort of Malpass, one of the like, biggest studios in Atlanta. We were, At the time, it was called Major League Studio, you know, and I'm working with like rock bands that I like really, really are still friends with today and like loving Atlanta. And then the next thing I know, I go to New York, right? I'm feeling myself in a good way. Like, all right, I got a little bread behind me. I'm doing my thing. I'm going back and back. You know, I came back to Staten Island to do this project, get six G's. Dude swindled us. Whole thing was a hustle. Next thing I know, five months later, I lost my house in Atlanta. We had no money. I had a skin disease. Uh, I gained like 50 pounds, boils under my arms. You dig what I'm saying? Someone had died in our apartment. There was five dudes and a one bed, four dudes in a one bedroom apartment with mice running around. You feel me? The cops pulled up on us, put guns in my face, thought I was a, a broken our car, thought I was a bank robber. All this crazy shit. I went from working at two of the biggest studios in Atlanta to find myself on a dash of a car, a cop car with a dude with a bazooka behind me, dude trying to blow me away and not no bread, you know what I'm saying? And boils, like some biblical shit. I'm like, what is going on? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what happened, you know? But that's been life. It's been a thing of, for me at least, that's why this cloud shit or this other shit that people do is so wild to me is berserk because music is doing that has kept me alive spiritually and mentally you know even when my pockets weren't right 
it was it was it was fighting for this thing. Even when guns was in my face, or or when cats was lying on my name, or like running up, whatever. You know what I'm saying? I get back in front of the computer and make that beat like nobody else can make. I make that swing in a way I can control that. I can't tr- control white supremacy. Like I can't make you not look at me as not a threat. You know what I'm saying? Or like love. But I can't fight for policy. That's why I do, you know, the Alpha Five. Or I can't put you on a game with solitary souls and let you know where the prison system came from. You know what I mean? So that's why I have so many hats. And I'm a music manager. I'm a, you know, I manage Nick Hansen. Shout out to the God. He's amazing. You know, I, I run a label, a media company. I'm an experimental artist. You know what I'm saying? Like I do a bunch of shit with shows, other people. Ah, ah, because. I refuse to depend on people. And if it's necessary, I'm going to fill the void. So that's why Sermon 3 is such a news company online, too, because I'm telling people what's going on. You know, Trump's sending in people over here and yoking people up in the night, federal agents. Nah, I'm going to let everybody know. You know what I mean? So that's that's the type of time that that developed. over. I'm 36 now. So that developed in a real way over 16 years of having to fill it. You know what I'm saying? So Now... I got lost here because number <laughs> number one was was getting the drum kit when you were a kid. You said you had there were three distinct moments. Oh yeah. Okay, so number yeah, two. So so this was number two. Yeah. Yeah, that was number two. Was um, coming back from college, and then we just kind of went into you know how that and that yeah yeah. And then number three, oh synesthesia. It was seeing it was seeing the music in color. So boom, right? I would be with Brad, and we would be talking about music, like like. We'd be working in the studio, working on a track. And I'd be like, yeah, the guitar needs to be a little more like gray, like, you know, like transparent. And he'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I, and I could, I felt like he could feel me, but he was just like, bro, like, no, for real. What are you talking? I'd be like, all right, like the kick, it just needs to be more rounder and blacker. And I'm seeing, I realize I have synesthesia. You know what I'm saying? I think actually he's the one who let me know or whatever. He's like, I think this is what you got. Um, but, or, yeah, people started explaining it back to me. I'm like, yo, that's the way I feel. Like when I was young, I used to hear the alarm and I would see beads. Like I would associate always like sound with objects and color. And so I thought you every- hear, You would hear the alarm, is that what you said? Yeah, like the alarm to go and to you, school. And you would see what? Like beads, like, you know, like little like beads, like bead lines, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, and that's just what the alarm sounds like to me, like, like beads. When you were playing the drums for the first time, do you think that was something similar too? Yeah, I was seeing, I was seeing it and turning it around, and like that's my brother was like, "Yo, what's up?" And I'm like, "What do you mean?" Like to me, it's clear as day. Like Michael Jordan said, when he shoots the basket is as big as a swimming pool. He just puts it in there. That's how I feel like with with music and stuff like that. It's not. It's just a conversation. It's just it's right in front. It's just there. It's just make, it's just logical sense to me. I'm like, yeah, it needs to be no red or turn a snare up, put that down. You know, that was natural things. It was a natural way to communicate. I can play, you know, I play like five instruments, right? Drums, guitar, keys, bass, synth, all that. But like, I can play any instrument that ass because it's all intervals, rhythm, you know, melodies, just intervals and rhythm. And so it doesn't matter what it is. To me, it just kind of makes sense. I might work on my, my windpipes or whatever or my technique. I might not play the, the violin like so-and-so, ah, 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 but I'm going to play it the way I play it. I'm going to fuck it up on a track because it's just a, that's the way I look at music. It's just like intervals and rhythm and it's genreless. You know, that's why I work with like harsh, harsh, like harsh noise and, and heavy shit and hip hop and folk and blue. It doesn't matter. It's all the same shit. You know what I mean? It's just sound waves, you know, different. Yeah. Tempers. I mean, that's interesting. Cause it's like, I feel like, you know, so many, um, 
you know, if you try to like explain what like harsh noise is to like, you know, most people in the world, they're like, what? Yeah. You know what I mean? But to like hear somebody who's like extremely musical to the point of having synesthesia is like into noise. You're like, all right, so there's there's something going on here. Oh my God. There's definitely something going on in harsh noise. When I seen, um, and it was crazy too, because my first like noise shows, I would just, there's no rhythm to it, right? Unless you're like at a Dream Crusher show. But like there's our Pharmacon be having a backbeat too. Oh, you come see me. You know what I mean? But like... <laughs> a lot of it is... is without without necessarily a backbeat, but I would feel myself huh, 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 shaking my head uh, uh, right next to Shawnee. Like, uh, uh, you know, we're both feeling this thing just with other other homies. Like, like we're on the same register here. Like, there's an energy when human fluid rot plays. That's just insane. Like even in just how uh, the textures play, I mean, I feel like all these noise artists got synesthesia because they're seeing textures and samples and they're intricate and it's 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 fucked and it's it's heavy and it's it's dynamic and it doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, man, that's that's it right there, you know. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but like, yeah, t- tell me more about sort of how Sermon Three, where like how it got to be a thing of like all these different types of music projects from, you know, putting out your own music to doing a label or whatever, yeah. but like also mixing that with like putting news out and like talking about politics and being like really directly yeah. involved in that sort of thing. Like how did you end up like mashing all this stuff together? I think the biggest thing it, um, to kind of sum it up is Sermon 3 was a label before it was a news company. But then I realized I didn't want to have to pitch the fader. I don't want to have to pitch the vice about the article. Because seeing New World, right, as a kid, where when it was CDs, I used to pass out CDs and shit. And, and then seeing, you know, everything's digital. For instance, I had a producer short named Angel Hayes. I did this record called New York that blew up back in the day. It's like 2012. And I did like um, this other remix with her and Jamie XX for XL. You know, and one thing that I seen how it all blown up and like working girls that first album was the press, was the PR, was getting the message out. It wasn't just the label. You know what I'm saying? A lot of times we don't even know the label. And like labels, you know. We'll pump out the record, produce it, sign an artist, but then, you know, they have their press team. They want to get it on Rolling Stone. They want to get it on Fader. They want to get it. And, you know, that, that's getting the message out. So Sermon 3 started as a label, but I was like, I'm not, I'm not asking no more. I'm not asking permission for nothing. Just like, you know, why I decided, I said, my, my mentality was, I'm not, act, I'm not knocking at any more doors. I'm going to build my own house. And this is how we're going to treat artists. And this is what it's about. We're going to pri- prioritize, um, Black people, we're going to prioritize um, dope-ass club kids you don't know about. You know what I mean? So I was like, the last thing I want to do, well, let me back up, with the labels, put out these records and then have to ask for somebody to premiere it. So that's why I was like, I'm just going to 
It's going to be a media company. It's going to be a label and a news company. It's going to be both. You know, when I thought about news, I thought about how it legitimizes, like the um, makes it more legitimate too. Because if you're hearing news about, you know, so and so is going on in the nation, then I tell you about this crazy ass artist in Brooklyn right next to it. And it's like, damn, you tell me about a national emergency, and then you're, and then this artist low key is a national emergency. I wanted like people like um, people like Sunk Heaven, you know, and like crazy noise artists I know to be posted next to like Bjork and then what's going on in Congress. Like, like to me, they're not separate, you know, they're deserving. And so that's, that's also was the angle of it too. When I first started writing, I used to write for noisy a lot and like a lot of, a lot of people that I knew played music and shit. Like that was like my scene and whatever. And like, people would always be like, all right, how do I like, I got to get this thing premiered. I got to get this thing premiered, blah, blah, blah. Like the same stuff you're talking about. And I'd always like, you know, kind of get into it and give people tips and whatever. And then eventually I was just like, I was telling people this a lot. And like, I can't remember if anyone ever actually like followed through. And I was like, yo, you just have to like make a fake email address for a like publicity company yeah. and send it from there because if you send it just on your own they're not going to take you seriously you have to like play their yes. bullshit like publicity yes. game exactly. in order for them to like oh this is legitimate because it comes from some stupid thing and I, I remember like telling people all the time I was like just make up a fake email address from some publicity company go ahead and make up like an Instagram or website or something and just like trick people because like they're not going to like they're literally not going to write it up if you just send it from from you you know, if you're just like, oh, I'm in the band, you got to like, you got to pretend that you're paying somebody or or being paying somebody and like right. participating in this like stupid little game. Their way like, in for someone else to co-sign you before they co-sign you. Exactly. It's not enough for you to say, yo, this shit is lit. They got to hear it from a manager. They need to hear it from a publicist or they're not going to even care. That shit is so much ego to me. That's why I listen to as many demos as I can. You know what I'm saying? Because uh, I, I, I don't look at, oh, how many followers they got? Then I'm going to cover them. I, I ask my, it's very apparent how the record, how the, the situation makes me feel. And when I moved, I move. So speaking of all that, like the new stuff and like what you're putting on your site, I mean, I I met you because you were projecting a message on a wall next to Occupy City Hall down at these uh, George Floyd protests that have been happening all over New York. No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. Fuck these racist ass. How is that? How is sort of like building this platform where you're like working with these artists who are, you know, these artists in themselves are a national emergency, as you put it. And like also working with, you know, trying to get like different ideas and messages out that like are, you know, relevant to, you know, your experience and shit. Like how, how does kind of like building this platform play into like also then like being out in the streets, like especially what's been happening in the last couple months. It's been, I mean, I'm so thankful that I have it. It was almost like, you know what I'm saying? I was in the desert. I didn't know why my career was going the way it was. And it was like, felt like Noah building an ark, like the flood is coming. Because it's centralized to so many of our homies. It's centralized to so many people in the underground, people who are our national emergency, who are BIPOC, who are all different genders and sexual identities. Uh, uh, and like, um, gender identities and sexual orientations and that need to know what's good, not from CNN, not from a suit with an agenda, with somebody they know in real time who's really out here. So when we was in New York and 
Five was beating people over the head with batons. And, you know, Jane Payne's hitting my line like, yo, can I come into the crib? Like running past my house with, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm going sermon and I'm letting people know where they at. And I'm like, check the story. You know, we had a, um, we had a, uh, uh, protest directory. Because that's the one thing, you know, with the Justice for George Floyd, but Sermon is, is national, it's international. So I would, you know, when it was just day after day, I would put uh, protests into pretty much every major city. I told people, send me your protests and all the stories is going to be used so people can have a database to know if I'm in Detroit, this is where it's popping. If I'm, hey, I'm going to be traveling to Philly, I go to Sermon 3, I can see what the protest is at. And then it's just like, there's no more red tape. There's no more, this is like, Literally kids on the ground sending me their videos of what's going down in Minneapolis. I got heads in Minneapolis literally when the, 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 the police stations are burning, sending me photos like, bro, like post this, bro. This is what's good. Fuck what the media said. Like you can see right here. And I'll be like, yo, fuck what the media said. Boom. And that's the most powerful thing about Sermon is that it literally is a message. You know, it's a, it's a lifeline for a lot of people. You know what I'm saying? Because a lot of people don't want to go to CNBC or NBC and this other thing and, and hear something that, that's been uh, verified by, you know, five different chains of command to come out. You know what I'm saying? The editor to the editor to the editor. You know what I mean? I could be, you know, on the way down, uh, uh, another trusted ally or comrade is like, yo, this is what's going on at City Hall. Boom, put it on my page. You know? So that kind of energy doesn't happen from a big committee. It happens because I'm a part of it. And also we need, we need people that are a part of it that are willing to do the organization and do the work. You know what I'm saying? And it's a lot of work. It's all, it's all, I feel like both me and you do is, I've been working all day, still got to eat, but it's worth it. And people have, you know, like putting people on the qualified immunity. You know what I'm saying? Like that was when I posted that there was under a thousand hashtags about qualified music. It wasn't a thing. That post went viral. Like petitions got made. You, you feel me? Like the, it's in the house, right? You were at the Senate at this point. That was a real thing that Sermon got behind. Centoya Brown, you know, we, we banged the governor's line. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see that, you know what I mean? Regardless of how much money we have, regardless of like how big your network is, X, Y, and Z, big corporation, me and other kids, and young people and people in different diasporas that you don't think have power are showing our power, you know? And so that at a time like this, we need it more than ever, man. You know, having a, a platform like Sermon 3 is important. You see, like, independent media has been around for, like, a while. Yeah. Like, from, like, you know, like, Democracy Now! and shit like that. Like, lo and local, you know, independent media centers that do, like, radio and whatever. But, like, now it's, like, as media is disseminated right. not just on you know the radio and tv but the internet and social media and whatever else like you see all these different things pop up and it's like when it comes down to it like there's so many people right now who are in the streets and if you like just read the like liberal shit like let alone if you look like are watching fox news or whatever but if it's like if you read the new york times yeah. and you like listen to npr right like you don't even know that there's protests happening on the streets right now. Facts. They're not even talking about it, you know? So it's like people need to kind of make their own media because, you know, the mainstream media isn't going to pay attention to it otherwise, I feel I, like. Exactly. You're exactly right. Like, there's free fridges going around. It's been going around for a while. How many people need food that still don't know about the free fridges? You know what I'm saying? Like, so many of our fees are just consumed with pop culture. It doesn't matter how much indie shit you look at. It's good to have a place where people know it can be centralized, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. This my story has obviously probably changed by the time this episode comes out, but like I I saw that you were, you know, posting a lot of stuff that's like happening in uh in Portland right now too. Yeah. Which yeah. is fucking nuts. And it's like, yo, like there's uh just like literal fascism in the streets. Right. And like you you barely even hear about it. You know, unless unless if you're following the right people on Instagram or like are plugged into uh, the anarchist network or the right. protest movement network or whatever. It's like people probably don't even like average people don't even know that that's happening. Right. It's like nuts. there's federal agents, like you said, fascism in the streets, people unidentified. Like you saw bro had his not bro, but dude had his um, face co- completely face covered. Just his eyes was out so he can see when they grab homeboy off the block. When it, when it, I didn't, when it ID who they are, didn't say where they taking them. You know what I mean? And it is under Trump saying, it, literally, uh, you need to dominate protesters, which is the population. You need to control the population. That's totalitarian ass dictator, fascism ass, fuck you. You know what I mean? And it's happening in our country right now, but it's not, it's nowhere. It's not, it's not, it should be the first thing that people are talking about. You know, and then my homegirls in Kansas, she hit me like, yo, they just deployed agents in Kansas. That's why I put a little asterisk in the caption in real time. Like, yo, it's going down to Kansas. She was like, they got unmarked cars. Because she's like, you know, the protesters sometimes, it might be only 50 of them out there. But she'd be one of the 50, you know. And like, yo, they got unmarked cars, hitting people with pepper spray. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, letting people know, hey, this is not just about to be a Portland thing. By the time this airs. We might have, they might have called us Yoda. You know what I mean? Called because it's gonna hit the other cities. It's you know what I mean. He's Trump is trying to get a quell on a protest. He's trying to get a quell on COVID. He wants everything to go back to where it was, but we're refusing to go back. So they're trying to take it by. They are literally right now doing it by force. Completely unconstitutional. Uh, they don't give a fuck. You can disappear right now. You know, on the on the flip side of of Trump trying to quell these protests, seeing these protests be so huge and so expansive all over the country and to an extent all over the world. Like how does, how does that make you feel kind of like being a part of it and kind of seeing it happen? Um, it's, it's, it gives me hope and the audacity to hope 36 years into this thing. Um, my homeboy, you know, he's another, uh, black leader has been doing a lot with, uh, New York city protests in general. He texts me and some other brothers we in a group chat. We, we get, we get, we get stuff done together. You know, he texts us today. Like I'm going to Portland. <laughs> and I was like, where are you going into the storm? He was like, yeah, you know, his, his words, I'll be honest. His words was like, New York is pussy right now. You know what I mean? Like he felt, he was like, let's get it. He's here to get it and around people who are going. Well, I was, I was fight. shocked that, that, sorry to cut you off a little bit, but that, that first day, um, whatever it was, the Friday night after the, and I guess the next night too, after the precinct burned in Minneapolis, I was, yeah. I was so shocked. I wasn't in New York city at the time, but to actually see like cop cars burning in New York city, My it's God. Like, you know, not to, to reiterate or to kind of like echo what your friend was saying. It's like, there, it's just such a police state in New York city right. that you, you know, it's not like Oakland right. or right. Portland right. or uh, other cities where there's like actual, like, you know, threatening protests in the streets when something gets fucked up in New York. It's just like, well, there's all of a sudden Mad like, 3,000 cops in front of you too. So it's like, you can only do so much. But with, that, with, a, with that $11 billion budget, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're literally- and, and, and like a police force that's bigger than like countries' armies. Exactly. The fuck. exactly. I was about you know, to- it's like, yeah, it's like 36,000 police in New York City. It's like the mini, I think it's 
in Minneapolis, I'm pretty sure it's 800 police. Jesus. So it's like, think about the difference. Right, right. They, it's just, it's, it's, and they have each other's back, the blue shield, the blue coat by any means necessary. And yeah, and they make example out of people like Shorty, the, uh, you know, the lawyers that got 45 years for the cop car. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's egregiously, you know, excessive sentencing crazy because, you know, they're, again, trying to totalitarian state lock it down. But it's all the same. It's all the same. It's, it all comes from the same brain, you know? Um, but yeah, when I seen that first, and first of all, New York, we got this, you know? And But I understand what my brother was saying. He was, all he was trying to say was, he was like, that energy that is, uh, important right now is something I can recognize from all the way across the nation. And I like, I need to be there. I need to be there. I need to be there. Help. I need to be there. And with other people who are going to say, Oh, this is what you want to do. All right. Fuck it. I'm going to go out anyway, even though we're being kidnapped and I'm going to double down on what they're doing. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They burned down the police union last night. Yeah. Wait, what? You know? Yeah, in Portland, they burned a police union building down. <laughs> Hell yeah, that's what I'm talking. See, that's why he said, "Brothers, I'm going to Portland." You know, yeah. he he just wants um, um, direct action, which I understand because it moves from direct action. But it's 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 happening here, and in the way that it did pop off um, that that those first two weeks, man, when when the when the police cars were burning, and you know, homies were really taking it to the chin and doing whatever they had. You know, it literally, it, people outside of New York were hitting my phone like, you good? I'm like, yeah, I had to play my part. My part, of, because I have that platform, like 25,000 of us, I was letting people know was jiggy. Like we was on, you know, the scanners. We made everything, ah, 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 I'm relaying messages. Or or me and my homegirl had a scanner and we found out, you know, people got kettled over here and we could see it. So we would take an Uber over to where they at to try to save them. You know what I'm saying? Well, however we could from cops this way, you know, we were on the ground, just running around on the ground, running around, doing what we had to do to keep people safe. You know, I, I do know, I do believe that New York <clears throat> is going to have another round. You know, I, it's, it's, it's the people in the city have worked too hard. The city is too black. It's too beautiful. It's too resilient. It's too, uh, it's too honest. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, right now, yeah, yeah. I mean, shout out to that Portland is doing that and wherever else and whoever else. And I would love to see more direct action just in general here and everywhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. To, cool to hear you say. I hope it does have another round, and I think it will too. What about your uh, five points mm. program? Because yeah, that's man. again like how we met. You were projecting this on the side of a huge building right next to City Hall, and yeah. tell me about like kind of that message and what you how you came up with that, and and what else you're doing to sort of amplify it. Well, it's it's exactly where we kind of where we left off about action, right? We both want to see direct action because we know that's where it changed. That's where change happens. It doesn't happen by making people comfortable. You know, there's no war that happened because people say, okay, well, you act nice enough. Here you go. You know, and we want direct action, but we got to ask for what we're asking for. What's the policy behind the action? Every time we move, every time something burns down, you got to put why. You, and that to me was a big sore thumb that was sticking out is people were upset. But then what are we demanding? Because we're worthy. And the things that we're demanding are worthy. We're in the right here. We're on the right side of history, if you want to call it. We're, we're you know, I, t- I, t- I, t- I tell people, because um, they have, have said before, yo, you're making history. I'm like, I really don't care about making history. I, I care about changing the future. 
You dig what I'm saying? And so that's a, that's a different energy. Like this has got to change. This cannot stay this way. So what are the things that have maximum efficiency, right? And those were the, the, the five policies that came up. The first thing that came up actually was what became the Civilians Defense Act. What happened was it was like 2015, bro. It was like, and another brother had got killed by another cop in a way that did not ever need to close to even be a situation that we're talking about occurring. It was just a murder in the streets. And I seen it and I, I'm baffled. I've seen it my whole life and I'm baffled. I'm like, how do these cops get away with just without being accountable? Like, you can just, dude is running away from you. He's running away from you. You don't get, you're shooting, you're shooting someone in the back, you're shooting to kill. That's intent on murder. That's 10, 15 years. How is that not even a conversation? So I, I started making this thing. But really what I was asking for was them to take away qualified immunity. Because the reason the cop can do that is because he's got qualified immunity, right? And so, but in the Civilians Defense Act, there were tenants like, hey, if you, you're tried as a citizen, you know, uh, um, you can be held in civil court, which they can't be right now. You know, if you do something, you got to pay for it. So that's where the Civilian Defense Act and qualified immunity, that's why they work hand in hand, because we know that the cop shoots and does that because of profiling, racism, aggressions that they have, programming, uh, ill training, but uh, ill will to learn on top of that. But then we also know that they can't be the ones to write their police reports. They can't be the ones to uh, judge themselves, right? So what I created was is a system that's an independent bureau that hold police to the law. It has its own public defenders that are actually well-funded because a lot of public defenders aren't. If a civilian like me or you sees a cop do something that's illegal, right? They can walk their ass right into the CDA, why CDA, talk to CDAE enforcement and let them know what happened. That person then writes down a police report, right? And then from there, you have CDAE prosecution, CDAE. P. Those prosecutors are the public defenders. They're people who have legal legal backgrounds, but they can't have any kind of. So we got to do background checks. They can't. They can't be uh, uh, embedded with the DA, with the judge, any of that. Um, they're the ones who hold them to the law, but they're then not tried by a judge, but a jury appears because the judge. We know the cops. They all embed together, right? So it's it's just like anything, you know a diverse group of people from the community, you know? I said divest the police and invest in black. That's different than defund. Defund is important, right? Because we're taking money, but divest says we take away power, resources. So that that power and resources are chokeholds, uh, uh, shooting first, asking last, profiling, you know, certain uh, changing their uh, training systems, you know, taking money away. And putting it then into programs in the community that are restorative. Instead of sending kids to juvenile hall where they just get hardened and they're assaulted, you know, um, have them in the community, have programs that are run by G's in the community, by homies that live out here. You know, it, comes, it is different when it comes from me. It is different when it comes from somebody who's in the area that people are like, oh, I see your homie around. Yeah, he'd be at, he'd be at the shop on the corner. You feel like you could trust that because you can to a degree. You feel me? Because we're here. So, we need programs in the black community that serve people in the black community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of the, some of that stuff you were just talking about, um, you know, one, one thing is like exactly like if you're, when you were talking about, you know, Penn station yeah. and that sort of interaction and 
George Floyd and all and Lucy's and all this shit being fucking stupid shit. That is not some not a reason to kill somebody or dehumanize right. somebody or whatever. It's like, you know, you just think about it, like imagine if just for mm-hmm. a month in America they like switched it up and like that happened to white people for a month. Oh, you know, (laughs) like they were like every, you know, instead of like getting fist bumps at the fucking blue lives matter rally, they got their fucking ass beat for nothing and thrown in jail. I mean, just think about like how quickly it would change if, if people actually like understood Mm -hmm. that this is stupid shit and it's not shit that's a reason to fucking kill somebody. Exactly. The fuck it is. Some some like white ally friends, I think we both had, they got their ass beat that first couple of weeks. Uh, they needed some time off. <laughs> like, like I'm not even, I'm not mad. But I remember it was like, okay, you know, uh, people got arrested. Some people got some batons to the face. Some people, one dude, one of the homies got a broken arm. And then I'm, you know, talking about organizing, you know, next week or two. Homie said, look, I'll be honest, I'm shook. <laughs> You know what I mean? Because they had never, and we, as black people, we talked about that. I'm like, yo, ain't that something? White people out here are, are, are starting to get some of that, some of that feeling. And, uh, I, I could just see cops with their batons, like, I'm hitting, like, who am I hitting now? Like, I, you know, Sally Mae and everything like that. It's like, whoa, I'm not used to, you know, and it's, 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 it's like Rebecca. Rebecca. I'm sorry. Right. Oh my God. I wasn't Karen? expecting to beat you right, right. now. Um, yeah, and that that changes the ball game for people when it's in their home. That's why we got to bring the revolution to their home. That's why it's that because you got to feel that heat, you know. Yeah, and also too, I was talking to my to my homie, the last two actually, both black. We were talking about uh, how, and this happened to me uh, at Occupy. This Asian woman, uh, we had a a rule at Occupy, no talking to cops under any necessary, you know, and she took a picture with them. And with a donut sign, and the cops were kind of looking like this is corny, and it was like, "Thank you." And I was like, "This is not okay." So me and my, well, me and one of my brothers went up there, and hey, I want to let you know, you know, um, we have a zero tolerance policy for this, and we basically went into why this is not okay. You know, she got immediately defensive, right? Uh, instead of li- instead of listening and and taking direction on something that is about us for us from our community, and start saying, "I've been protesting for 19 days." You've been doing a good deed for 19 days. You went out, held up a sign in Soul Solidarity for two months. You think that gives you any kind of privy? This is the work you're supposed to be doing, period. And another thing is we've been black our whole lives. This isn't a moment, you know? So I, yeah, taste that shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, go ahead and, and, and do the necessary work. Cause the shit has been getting worked on us the whole time. That's why we used to the fight. But that's the uh, that's that's the privilege talking right there. You dig what I'm saying? And like they don't even know what that to think what that feels like. And the fact that they was out there for 19 days, they already patting themselves on the back. Imagine imagine if they had got some knees in their back or stepped on their neck. You dig what I'm saying? Like they don't. They're, it's just like it's, it's it's wild. But that's what people need to do. They actually need to um, uh, have felt it some kind of way. You know, allies and people who are down for equality and justice and like the most basic things in life. Let's get with it for as long as it takes. Not for the month, not till COVID is over. You know what I'm saying? That's what we, that real energy to say, hey, these are the tenants we're fighting for. I'm fighting with you. Yeah. I didn't mean even like John Lewis, who you mentioned a minute ago, he's like 
this is a lifelong fight, you know, and it's and it's, it has to be a fight forever and it has to be a fight until fucking your kids too because it's like what you were like uh talking about a minute ago you know there was just something making me think about like yeah like talking about how it's just changed slavery is still here it's just different now and it's like think about like what in in two generations people are gonna look back and be like damn look how fucked up it was in 2020 and it's still going to be fucked up then too. You know what I mean? Like it's never going to be like, oh, there's like equality and harmony and like a beautiful society. Man, I think the the world will just like disintegrate from fucking climate change or something before that ever happens. So it's like, you know, yeah, it's not going to be 19 days. It's going to be like your your grandkids and their grandkids and whatever got to all be doing this because it's never going to be fucking good, <laughs> you know? Right. Understand that that is a lifelong fight. That is not. That's not a, a. That's not a commercial break between your favorite show and Netflix. So something else I want to talk or ask you about was, um, which I think we you kind of got into the themes of that a little bit a minute ago too. Was the Solitary Souls project oh, that you did right. it was just fucking awesome. Thank you. combination of of this these sort of like um historical field recordings or whatever and then yeah. like your twist on it. it was just like you know it makes you and the writing that went along with it is just like yo like come on can everyone just admit that this was not that long ago and it's not right. different and it's like yeah it's not something like oh we're all good like everybody was born and then uh you know <laughs> have their life and it's just like fine you know right but yeah, can you just tell me like, tell me about like where you kind of found this stuff and sort of like what yeah. this project is It just like, you know, people who, who don't know what this project is, just like run me through it a little bit. Yeah, for me, it was, and it's a test of what you were just saying. We weren't just born here. The ghetto didn't just get here. Uh, one out of three black men being locked up in slavery didn't just happen. And so I want to peel back the layers and say, why, how? You know, I saw it in my family story. My grandpa, my great, my great grandpa was at Parchment Farm. He was an inmate there, you know? And so how, why, like, how was I born? How was I, how how did I know the first time that I was ever called nigger? Why they were calling me that? Why it hurt? I was seven. I just moved to New York. I was seven. Right? That is so, I'm seven. I'm a little ass kid, and yet I know all the racial implications. You don't gotta tell me how much it hurt. You know, I cried. You know what I'm saying? So, what happened way, what happened to my mom and daddy? What happened to my grandparents? What happened way before that? That a seven year old already knows what it is. So, that's basically the thing was peeling back the layers and letting, and letting black people know our narrative and letting white people know it too, because so many people get this pop jigaboo narrative and they think, that black is synonymous with predator. Black is synonymous with violent. Black is, black is nothing but resilient. People think they know what the black experience is. Like my brother, you know, he would, he would tell me when he was 
uh, he was just telling me, you know, like, I hate people that tell me, like, I talk white. Because people think that black is a certain language, too. That if you, if you, if you, if you talk a certain way that to them is proper or to them is a standard, that's not black. You know what I mean? People, people have this, these negative connotations. But so much of media, bro, so much of everything we consume and that we think from a white perspective and a black perspective is black. You're supposed to be a gangster. You're supposed to be a problem. You're supposed to be a violent. You're supposed to have a mandingo dick. The thing is, we're so spiritual because we've had to be. So when you talk about the music that comes from solitary souls, when you talk about the chain gangs, those came from the church. Those came from um, songs of people that were enslaved and they were, they were communicating to each other. You know what I'm saying? Through the call and response. That's where all that, all that came from on the chain gang where they would, they would, if you got, if and you, if you read solitary souls, you know, you notice if you fell behind, you could get shot in the street or shot in the field. So that rhythm, be my woman, girl, I be your man, kept people on beat. Music for black people has always been survival. Period. Survival for your mental, for your spiritual, and letting people know where slave catchers were, letting people know where freedom riders were. It's always been communication and survival, keeping people afloat when they're in the field. And that has turned into jazz, into rock, into pop, into everything. You know what I'm saying? So I just wanted to break it down so that we could wash our minds. Mine also, too, if you see at the end, it says, Black people, remember, you are resilient. You are beautiful. So... That's why it always ends each time with reminding black people who we are and also for white people to see that so that when they see a black person in the road or see a group of black guys on the street, they don't have and they tense up. They can go and remember, Okay, solitary souls. Okay, black people are resilient. Beautiful. I know I've been taught otherwise, but this is a really dope legacy. Because our legacy is lit times 10, doubled down, shaken over. For real, for real. But what's beautiful is that yet again we rise. And that's the story that I want to keep telling people. It's like each time we held our, held our head up high in, in rows and did X, Y, and Z. So it's really a roadmap from slavery into where we're at now, how we got there, and how we've been continue to rise regardless. And there you have it, folks. That was the 83rd of Sermon 3 on Protest and Survive. You can find out more about his music and work at s3r.news or at Sermon 3, that's the number 3, on Instagram or 8383.bandcamp.com. That's the numbers 8383.bandcamp.com. This episode was edited by Jason Halal, who was a real treat to work with. This track is by the 83rd. Original music for Protest and Survive is by Jesse Crawford, who just got back surgery. Feel better, Jesse, you sexy motherfucker. Donate to this podcast at anchor.fm slash protest dash and dash survive so I can figure out how to pay these homies one day and you can check out all of our back episodes there or wherever you listen to podcasts. And for the love of everything that's holy, please rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next time. Damn it. I'm going to start this over.